My name is Umer, and you're tuning in to the Oats for Breakfast podcast. Today's episode is a bit of a special one. We've been producing the Oats podcast for a bit over a year now. We've managed to create a large amount of content, so it seems like right now is a good time to revisit what we've been creating and put together an episode based on some highlights. This episode will feature five short segments from material we've published over the course of the last year. All of the segments are about five minutes in length or shorter. I'll be introducing each one and then playing it for you. Many of our listeners will not actually have heard the highlights that I'm going to play because all of them are from Patreon-exclusive segments of the podcast. Remember, if you haven't done so yet, to subscribe to the podcast That way, you'll be alerted whenever we release a new episode. To subscribe, just search for Oats for Breakfast on iTunes, Spotify, or any other podcast app. Also, if you're able to do so, please support us by becoming a patron of the podcast. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash Oats for Breakfast. Our patrons get access to exclusive content, and they're crucial for the continued existence and growth of the podcast. If the creation of socialist media platforms is important to you, then please consider becoming a patron. You can do that once again by going to patreon.com, that is p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash oats for breakfast. Our regular listeners will know that, unlike most other podcasts, Oats for Breakfast has rotating hosts. In fact, there are close to a dozen people who've so far served as hosts of the Oats podcast. In this episode, you'll get to hear the voices of many of them. The first segment I'm going to play is from our interview with Adolf Reed Jr. The interview was conducted by Daniel and Sadia. In the segment that I'll be playing, the discussion is about the transatlantic slave trade and the formation of identity among black Americans. The takeaway for me is the idea that identities are not naturally occurring and frozen in time. Identities, whether we're talking about racial identities or otherwise, are constructed. They're products of history. The segment opens with Daniel referencing a book by Cedric Robinson called Black Marxism. So Cedric Robinson, uh, he has this criticism of uh, of Marx as a uh, not realizing or not uh, highlighting or underscoring the cultures and the ontologies mm-hmm. that, uh, as he would put it, the decultured cargoes right. and the slave ships, right. uh, uh, the, these ontologies that they had and that they brought over and that, most importantly, were the, the seed that led to the eventual collapse of the, right. the system of slavery, right? right? They brought, so the when he's talking about ontologies, when he's talking about cultures, mm-hmm. it's not some abstract notion. He really is talking about- well, No, it is about, an abstract notion, though. But, but maybe it really that, is. I mean, he said it as a force in the world, but it's an abstract notion. Sure, but the way he's describing it, we know what yeah. he means when he says ontologies. Well, no, I'm not sure, actually, right? Because, see, I mean, to me, and granted, it's been a while since I read, read, read that book. I read it a long, long, long time ago, and it's kind of intriguing to me to see it become- the thing that it's become, like in the same way that I was kind of bemused when C.L.R. James became the thing that James became. Um, but what I remember most about that book is that there's nothing that's even re- remotely like a black Marxism in it until the last chapter, 
and even that is a more about talking about individuals like I mean Du Bois and others. And as far as the claim about whatever the ontologies were that like undid the slave trade, I mean there's like a parallel thing going on, like a tradition of anti-slavery constitutionalism, right? That eventuated in the formation of the Republican Party, which in turn led to the election of Lincoln, which in turn led led the slave owning states to secede, which which actually provided the pretext what I mean the one pretext under the premises of anti-slavery constitutionalism for a direct assault on a slavery where it existed and emancipation. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, I just don't... But I guess, I mean, when I read the book, you know, I was thinking that if you think about West Africa and the, and the context from which real human beings were picked off and put into mm-hmm. slave ships, there wasn't... It wasn't until they were, you know, put on the slave slave ship that there was something uniting them. There is a complexity of different experiences that they came from. So mm-hmm, they wouldn't right. have said that there right. that there is some right. that we are all black or right. we are all African, you know. So to so to ascribe a certain kind of a seed there that's a, that's coherent and, and unified is to project something that doesn't actually exist. Right. So I just want to untangle that. So there's two two points. Uh, mm-hmm. One. Are there complexities in different types of, for lack of a better term, blackness? That's one question. The other question was, the, the point I was making is, by talking about something that appears metaphysical, are we actually talking about something that's practical? No. Uh, no, I think when we're talking about something that, that appears metaphysical, I think we're talking about something that's metaphysical, mm-hmm. right? Uh, look, I'll say this too, right? Ira Berlin's book, Many Thousands Gone, is something you might find interesting. It's a study of the first 200 years of slavery in British North America. And what what you see is is different patterns of social relations within slavery, different patterns of social relations like among slaves. And already by the turn of the 19th century, black people in in, uh, North America had pretty much stopped, you know, you know, stopped referring to themselves as African because they weren't, right? Um, what, I mean, the, uh, the international slave trade was officially um, outlawed here in 1808. And yeah, ships came in until the 1850s. But by and large, like the, the population of enslaved people here grew through nat- natural increase from like the end of the 18th century onward, you know, till the end of the institution. And what that meant is that more and more, since these people were, were here, they understood themselves to be Americans mm-hmm. and articulated their concerns and their aspirations and stuff in, in a relation to American political institutions and their own conditions, right? So, like, there's a tendency now um, to contend that we need to study the transatlantic slave trade to get a sense of the construction of African self-understandings. And of course, the problem with doing that is there's no documentary or archival evidence of anything that concerned the inner lives of slaves in the Middle Passage. But the response to that is, well, that's the reason that we need to study study it, and we need to make it up, basically. All right, so on on one level, that's, that's just like an academic hustle. Right. But on another level, it's like part of an ideological project. And the ideological project is 
something like the invention of a national identity. Our interview with Adolf Reed has been the most popular thing we've published. Because of how popular the interview was, we made the second segment, which was initially only accessible to our Patreon supporters, we made it uh, accessible to everyone. So if you haven't heard the whole thing and would like to do so, just look for the unlocked segment in our list of episodes. The next highlight that I'm going to play is from the Patreon-exclusive segment of our episode on the HBO miniseries Chernobyl. The episode was titled HBO's Chernobyl and the Limits of the Liberal Imagination. In the segment that I'm going to play, Olena, Brent, and Lena argue about the political commentary the show's writers are trying to offer. There's a disagreement between them over whether the show is a critique of populism or whether it's meant to serve as a warning about the kind of statism that was a feature of life in the Soviet Union. I don't know. I just don't know how to read the state in this. I really, the more I think about it, the more I realize, like, I'm, the more I think this is just a, a, really a critique of populism. Can you expand on that, Brent? I don't think the HBO writers and producers are saying we really need to take a shot at the Soviet Union right now. You know, I, I think, they if I think of them as sort of, you know, well-off, liberal, middle-class, blue, blue state, sort of Democrat voters, Hillary supporters, you know, who are they taking a shot at ideologically? But does it need to be explicit? It doesn't need to be explicit. Does it need but to be intentional is, in, in terms yeah, of... Yeah, I also don't think that it has to be intentional. I also think that it, the story, I the think narrative that's true. can I think, be written. I think the critiques of the Soviet Union may actually come across more unintentionally. Exactly, and that is more scary. Because of all of the things that, yeah, yeah, that we, just living in liberal democratic societies sort of... Right and that, internalize exactly. There's a baggage. Yeah, there's, when, there's, a, there's a baggage a that comes. That somehow I think that's the internalization they have of that the Soviet Union was cheap, right? They didn't have the level of economic development to sort of compete with. I think that's what that is. Yeah. So what is the solution then? What do you, Brent, see the the sort of alternative that that the creators are, want us to see? Right? Is is it private enterprise that capital would have done better? You know, if there was a bit more freedom for the economy, and that, then they wouldn't be so cheap if there was some competition. See, I don't think it's saying any of that. No. I, th I think it's more hypocrisy. And I think they're not even realizing the hypocrisy of their own situation as liberal centrists, sort of. And, you know, none of, you know you, Roland Barthes, death of the author. None of this has to be explicit. They don't have to, to know right. this. But uh, what was I going to say? Um, they're not making the critique of the Soviet economic system they're making the critique of fake news you know the discourse of fake news blah 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 they're making the critique of populism of taking liberties with the truth well blah, what's blah, blah, interesting blah. about populism because again gorbachev is no populist in this in this uh, series i know so i that's don't why think it's populism yeah that's why because he he ended the soviet union i know but i don't think it's a critique of populism i don't think the soviet union operated on populism, really, for the but that's the thing. After. You don't. It doesn't. It's not about the Soviet Union. That's mm -hmm. the thing, right? It's about what is the contemporary political landscape. But there was no populism in the. Sh they're they're in the using show. the Soviet Union. What was the populism? No, he's saying to make a critique of populism. Sure, sure. But where did example. they see the pop? Like, where did you see the populism in the show that was then, you know, critiqued? In, in all the untruths that are circulating because through the Soviet system. Because I don't see that as necessarily system, populist. That they're that they're that they're positing. Right, they're saying all these untruths. But lead why to is that populist? It's populist because 
like, I don't know, because it's like the, uh, can someone else help me out here? No, because I don't think it's populist. It is populist in the sense that populism is equated with almost pure ideological position. And the liberals have taken the position that we are the experts, we represent expert culture. So when Donald Trump calls CNN fake news, Mm -hmm. right? Because all these objective news sources from the liberal perspective. I know, I know. Liberals equate themselves with objectivity, right? And always representing this expert culture. This expert culture, which was hegemonic, I think there's a conflation. 2008. I agree. I agree. But I think there's a conflation between, for you here, between populism and state power and totalitarianism. Because I think rather than populism, it's totalitarianism. What's the critique of Trump? What's the worry with Trump? But in the show, show, I think it's more a critique of totalitarianism and big state. Big state rather than somebody like Lula in in Brazil. That's a populist leader. Putin is a populist leader, maybe. But here, it's a critique of big state and state-led everything. I think the explicit critique is of populism. I think that's what they have in their minds when they say, what is the cost of lies? They have in their minds sticking up for the objective press, sticking up for the liberal center, sticking up against Donald Trump and a sort of very ideological, taking liberties with the, uh, with the truth approach which they project onto Donald Trump. I think there is obviously some implicit background ideology um, about the Soviet Union, right? Like critiques. But like, I, I don't think when they're trying to think about their messaging, and I don't know how explicit this is, they're not that worried about the Soviet Union. They're not worried about um, communist totalitarianism raise, like rearing its head again. But can you really, can you truly separate the critique of untruth from how people view yeah, I don't the Soviet so. Union? I feel like that's the part that for me doesn't quite fit. It's like, can we really talk about abstracts like, you know, the danger is untruth, but why not think of it as people see and understand the Soviet Union to be the sort of... um like the greatest example of that untruth, right? It's the greatest assumed. example. But now the it's Soviet assumed. Union is, faci- is is in service of a critique of populism. Whereas if this was a critique of, if this was a Cold War film, it would be very much explicit. A Cold War film is like Brazil. I don't know if you've ever seen Brazil. Right. Brazil is about bu- bureaucracy gone run amok, right? It's a critique very clearly of over bureaucratic systems and all the irrationalities this leads to. This is a different political context. Our episode on HBO's Chernobyl was the first time, and so far the only time, that we've done anything in the way of cultural critique. The episode was well-received, so I think we'll be doing more cultural critique in the future. If you have suggestions for TV shows, films, or books that you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know by writing to podcast at socialistproject.ca. The next highlight is from the Oats for Breakfast interview with Julian von Bargen. Kirsten and Adam talk to Julian about WikiLeaks, data activism, and information freedom. In the segment I'm going to play, Adam and Julian talk about how those within the hacker community can sometimes become politicized, even though they might initially just be in it for the laughs. Julian then goes on to explain what DDoS, or denial of service attacks, are. 
you keep invoking the phrase like for the lulls, you know, and I yeah. think it's a good it's a good point because I did some work on this concept of like tactical frivolity, like using humor as a social movement organizing strategy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you often see this transition, though, you see it where it's really purely about just the critique and the humor and the absurdity. And then there's an insertion of some sort of political project as it mm -hmm. progresses. And I think you can almost see an interesting parallel there with the way that sort of anonymous grew out of this for the lulls. You see the rise of lulsec and stuff like that, which wasn't actually for the lulls. It was for like the political engagement with this information. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually, it's a pretty fascinating transformation. Yeah. So just, you know, a few examples in the early days of Anonymous, you know, sort of famously, one of the big things they were interested in was the Church of Scientology. I, I don't think they had, you know, particularly strong political interests about that so much as the they found their got their hands on some sort of absurd Scientology documents and started spreading them around to find that there was a strong backlash and threatens of lawsuits and so on, which they took as kind of uh, inspiration to spread them ever further. And, you know, much later we get people like Jeremy Hammond, who was actually an anonymous member who was preoccupied with the relationship between the military, uh, the surveillance complex, and envi the environment. And so, you know, he st went from being somebody who was maybe in it for the lulls to having a very specific political agenda. And he went from frivolity on the internet to specifically hacking, uh, finding targets and hacking them to find out what was going on so that he could release these documents publicly. This is um, under the auspices of anti-sec, right? Yeah, under anti-sec. You know, anonymous, anybody could claim to be part of anonymous. But what you started to get were these kind of little anonymous splinter groups who might be a lot more focused on a specific goal, who might have a particular meeting place where they might come up with plans and actually start to build and fulfill a political agenda that makes them a lot different than just anybody wearing a Guy Fox mask, walking around protesting the Church of Scientology or something. So they were one of them. LulzSec was another one. And they were ultimately infiltrated by the FBI. Jerry Hammond uh, also is currently in prison serving 10 years for, and one of the things that he was ultimately arrested for was when WikiLeaks was originally attacked by, by the US state, by PayPal and so on, there was a huge response from members of Anonymous. And some of these groups, splinter groups, generated to sort of attack back against those people who were trying to attack WikiLeaks. So there was huge DDoS attacks against Visa that actually took the Visa webpage down. And um, do we know what DDoS attacks are? So a, D a DDoS attack or something, essentially what happens is that it's there's an element of it that's illegal and an element of it that's totally mundane and legal. And so the illegal part is people build these botnets. And so to build a botnet, you know, especially with the world we live in, so many things are connected to the internet. And it could be a fridge now or a microwave or a garbage or a phone or a computer or a video camera. And some of these have more sort of secure passwords than others. And if they're very insecure or you know some sort of exploit to sort of get uh, inside them, you can reprogram them, essentially create, you know, uh, like a zombie computer. So that's the illegal part. You find these exploits in many of these things that are kind of, you know, not really paid attention to, but connected to the internet. And then the kind of really mundane legal thing of the DDoS attack is then you take all of these bots, these zombies that you've created, and whatever they are, you just ask them to make a request to a server that you want to take down. So nobody attacked the Visa server, 
But, you know, if uh, 150,000 different computers all ask for just some basic information from the visa server all at the same time, this overwhelms the server and takes it down. So that's kind of the mundane legal element. You know, you're not doing anything legal by asking the, you're just saying, hey, visa, let me see your page. But if all of these computers do it simultaneously, then this sort of takes them down. So these are some sort of the attacks that were um, Hammond and others sort of used to try to respond back to the state as they started cracking down on the information freedom of WikiLeaks. The socialist left, I think, needs to develop a better sense of how the internet is increasingly serving as a place where politicization is taking place. It's important to remember, of course, that when politicization takes place on the internet, it isn't always progressive or left-wing. We know that the far right is benefiting a lot from internet-based politicization, so it's crucial that the left try to establish a presence within internet-based communities and cultures. The next highlight is from the Patreon-exclusive segment of our episode on How to Build Socialism in Canada. In the segment I'm about to play, Sadia, Corvin, and Charmine discuss the positive and negative aspects of disruptive tactics. Like, for whatever reasons, a lot of leftists tend to enjoy being marginal. Um, and I've been really hesitant um, towards, like, disruptive tactics of like direct action stuff mostly because like whenever i've seen it happen even as a leftist like i find it's hard to build support for that among like ordinary working class people that i know so um my fear is that it often ends up being used as a substitute for doing the sort of uh, more difficult work of talking to people who might not immediately be on board and have to be won over, which then would also mean that it probably can't be as radical an action. It would have to be something that more people are on board and more comfortable with. Um, but I think, so in, in that way, I feel like strikes are qualitatively different. I think that those kinds of disruptions are, of course, like at the heart of what Marxists understand to be working class power in a capitalist society. By qualitatively different, you mean in order for them to work, they have to have mass buy-in or they have to have buy-in of a large group of people. That in their very nature is that they need a large group of people, right. whereas for other kinds of disruptions, you can do it with two or three people. But even strikes may or may not work with like large groups of people. Um, but at least in the strike, by nature, it's a collective, bigger collective that is required. Right. I mean, I think it really depends... I think it really depends on the goals of these actions, right? Like I, I am supportive of, you know, a few people um, locking down to a pipeline to just to show awareness about the impacts of of, of the pipeline. Um, you know, if that's their goal, like some people just do direct actions, like we just want to show awareness, you know. Um, but a lot of direct actions do have demands attached to them, and they may not work the first time. It just have to escalate. Like you can't just like call general strike tomorrow. Um, but you can have you can build up to it by smaller actions that may or may not be disruptive, but then it can build up on that to something larger. And also, I'm I'm super. Um, I think we all ha have a lot to learn from the high school walkouts, um, which took. I mean, it's really funny going to these union conventions and they're talking about like, yeah, the money that we have to spend in organizing, like lamenting about having to pay for organizers to fight for it. All those high school walkouts happened with zero dollars. It was just like all social media, Instagram. And, um, and I feel like they have, um, a lot of mass support behind them. I think a lot of people are really excited for like the, for youth to do that. Um, so that element, 
but I do think that, um, like, if we rely on, like, unions and parties, which I feel like are bureaucracies that will then be like, oh, the money, the resources, things like that. I feel like a lot of radical social movements um, were based on just, like, will and that we and that activists kind of provided for each other, you know, um, like we, you know, it's great to spend money on, like, you know, an organizer, but I don't think it's um, necessary. And I think a lot of really successful, you know, disruptions, direct actions or movements have happened with little to zero resources. I think the high school walkouts, like these are kids with no money have shown that, you know, like they just like stole art supplies from their school <laughs> and went at it. Allegedly. Yeah. yeah. I'm not meaning to incriminate anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or a more complicated example, the yellow vests in France. Uh, also seemingly, I don't know the accuracy of this, but certainly the impression I've gotten is that it's largely organized on social media and it's, it's, it's relatively spontaneous, not that we want to rely on spontaneism, but just to build on what Sadia was saying earlier, I mean, I don't think, I, I've never been convinced by the propaganda of the deed as a sort of rationale for, it doesn't seem to work. I think you have to evaluate, you do have to... What is that? Oh, well, the propaganda of the deed is the idea that through some sort of direct action or it could be property vandalism or it could be something more, you know, even an act of violence, uh, that I, I can't articulate it fairly because I really don't believe in it. But I guess the it'll expose the violent nature by triggering a sort of a violent backlash. It will expose the intrinsically violent nature of the capitalist state and the scales will fall from people's eyes and they'll rise up then spontaneously to fight. And that doesn't take into account what we were talking about in the earlier part of our conversation around hegemony and hegemonic views. And so, you know, if you look at Remember when Richard, punching Richard Spencer or punching a Nazi became a meme, and even liberals were sharing it gleefully and saying, this is great. Well, that shows you the difference, because Nazism is still beyond the pale in liberal democracy, capitalist liberal democracy. And there's sort of a sense that it's okay to punch a Nazi, but it's not okay to smash a Starbucks window, right? Because that's not seen as the same, right? That's not understood in the same way. So you have to look at the hegemonic values in, in evaluating how that kind of direct action is going to be received. And that, I think, is a sort of the Gramscian take that a socialist can bring to thinking about those things and how does it build. So it doesn't just stop here, but where does it go? And how is it going to, is it going to alienate people and actually justify repression without bringing new people in? Or is it actually going to bring people in? Disruptive tactics, direct action, or civil disobedience, these have played an important role in pushing forward the cause of social justice. But sometimes they could perhaps be better thought through. The last highlight is from the Patreon-exclusive segment of our episode about the debate between Slavoj Žižek and Jordan Peterson. In the segment I'm going to play, Karma, Brent, and Blake talk about the impact of the Žižek-Peterson debate and whether it's worthwhile for leftists to engage in dialogue with those they have strong disagreements with. But see, this is a, this is the interesting thing. I, I was having a discussion with someone before the debate happened, um, and I was, and they were like, "Okay, well, you know, Zizek's not going to defeat the right for us, um, whatever." And I was like, "And and you know, they were kind of critiquing the the debate as just spectacle. So this is not you're not actually doing anything by doing this. Like it's not like you're actually dealing with the contradictions of capitalism by attending this debate or engaging with it. Um, it's just spectacle. And you know, because what I had said before is, look, like JP's ideas or whatever aren't just 
like amongst people who are like ideologically committed sort of like right wingers like people in the workplace and like in working class communities whatever like ha- have a lot of these ideas so it's important to, to engage with them um and that was like sort of their their comeback is that this is just spectacle and you're not actually engaging anyone or doing anything um and that it's sort of like yeah it's, it's not going to be necessarily accessible but i find that to be kind of ridiculous because we live i feel like in an age of spectacle mm-hmm. in a lot of ways like spectacle is really important to engage with and so it's this weird thing with leftists too where they're just so connected to this like no like it's on the ground work or whatever and it's like how is our society sort of really functioning nowadays like a lot of it is spectacle a lot of it is like these big sort of like aesthetic things actually Zizek probably did more to stem the tide of like Peterson Peterson mania Mm -hmm. than any of those like protests did which actually just sort of enhanced his reputation or any of the sort of Antifa and and it's not clear to me that those aren't spectacles either oh they're absolutely where you have like six uh, television stations downtown to watch 20 people from the internet get into a fight yeah yeah um, like Zizek, literally, if you look at the Jor- Jordan Peterson subreddit after, it was like literally you had his fans being like, I'm going to read Zizek. I'm rethinking <laughs> things. Yeah. Like it was quite, I was like, geez, I've never seen something like this before. And that's not to, to defend what Zizek said or say it was perfect, but you know, sometimes, yeah, engaging with them and really, you know, making it clear like that this guy's a fraud yeah. can, can go quite yeah. far. Thanks for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. That's it for the highlights that I selected to feature in this episode. We hope to continue publishing content in the coming months. And perhaps a year from now, we can publish another episode featuring highlights. If you've become a listener of the Oats podcast and you like what we're about, please help spread the word about us. You can do so, for instance, by sending an episode of ours that you liked to someone who you think would find it interesting. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time.